0: I try and look for these people that have this natural motivation, this intrinsic burn and this passion to just do better and better and better. And if I can do it in five minutes, I want to be able to do it in four minutes. If I can hit this, then I can hit that. I'm pushing and pushing and pushing to get better and better and better. And people who do it and incorporate it in such a way that it is a pleasure for them. They enjoy it. They engage in sort of this playful intellectual activity and I've seen it in medicine and I've seen it in, you know, the performing arts and music and just about everything, especially some of my favorite hobbies like skiing and whatnot, where they go out and not in even less of a structured format, they are going out and innovating in, in very interesting ways that are pleasurable to them.
1: Hi, folks. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Mike Loria. Now, Mike Loria is an emergency physician and an incredibly deep thinker about human performance under pressure. His career reads like one of those most interesting man commercials, so get ready. Mike served in the Special Forces as a pararescueman, or PJ, in the United States Air Force and has also served as a critical care and flight paramedic. Then he went to medical school at Dartmouth, and did his emergency medicine residency and an emergency medical services fellowship at the University of New Mexico. Now, as if that wasn't enough, he's currently doing a second fellowship in critical care medicine also at the University of New Mexico, and continues to work as the associate medical director for Lifeguard, the university's critical care transport program. Now, separate from all of that, he's also one of the most knowledgeable people I've ever had the pleasure to talk to about human performance under pressure, and this conversation is just plain awesome. We talk about building elite cultures, finding motivation across different disciplines, evolving our interests internal universes to better process stress, and even the role of tactical arts and crafts. There is just so, so much in this conversation. Before we get started, a reminder, if you like what you're hearing on the podcast, head over to emergencymind.com. There you can dive deeper into a lot of what we're working on. You can sign up for our free newsletter, Knowledge Under Pressure, at emergencymind.com slash sign up. And you can get more information about our book, The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, at emergencymind.com slash book. Okay, all that said, let's jump into this just truly awesome episode. I hope you enjoy, Mike. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. I am delighted about this. I've been looking forward to this. I read so much of the stuff that you've put out over the years, and am just like absolutely geeking out in terms of fandom here. And, and I'm honored you're on the podcast.
0: Oh, I thank you so much for having me. It's, it's, uh, it's really a p- pleasure to be here. And uh, I know this audience is very interested in the same topics that I am. So I'm stoked to be here discussing myself, this stuff with you, man.
1: Absolutely. So for folks who are listening to this that aren't already among the converted like I am, who are you? What do you do? What's your deal?
0: My name is Mike Gloria. I uh, started out in uh, the fire service and EMS in 2002 finished my bachelor's and enlisted in the military and uh, was a pararescue man in the air force. So I did combat search and rescue and direct medical support for different special operations teams around the globe. And then got out, I worked as a paramedic and flight paramedic, the uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock flight program for a while. And then eventually as uh, as proof that I had hit my, my head way too many times, I uh, decided to go back to medical school and then came back out to New Mexico for residency. I uh, finished fellowship number one about two weeks ago in EMS. And now I'm up in the ICU doing
1: critical care fellowship. Oh man. So first off, congrats, like congrats on finishing fellowship. Number one, I am, I'm surprised you were vertical and (laughs) awake and have the chance to sit down with us for this. So thank you.
0: (laughs) Oh, no problem. One for punishment.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It does sound a little bit like that. Yeah. Just skill stacking on top of skill stacking. Let's go, let's go back in time a little bit. So when you started this whole process, when you first started doing some of this work, when did you first start thinking about performance under pressure, sort of as its own thing, separate from the skills that you were doing?
0: It really started back when I was in the military. Like many people, I'd gone through a lot of the traditional sort of EMT and ski patrol training classes. And then throughout the training pipeline, it kind of started to key in. But then this weird thing happened, I think the first time I deployed, where you really get a sense of the true nature of the danger and chaos and all these other things that are going around. And I think you very naturally, an inquisitive mind naturally turns to the people who have done it really well. And. Uh, who you look up to who just seem to be top performers and thought it was interesting when I started to talk to those guys that they kind of treated the technical skills separately from the set of psychological skills and communication skills and various other skills they had. And what was interesting in that setting was they had done essentially performed, we call in the world of cognitive psychology, strategic adaptations. They had developed intrinsic strategies, behavioral strategies, and strategies with their equipment or the way they communicated with other people to be able to perform and incorporate a lot of those individual or discrete techniques technical skills. And that was really the first time that I had thought about it and realized that there's something to this. And then along the way, when you train in other areas, so whether that's operations at sea, aviation, uh, all of these other facets of uh, military and, and even outside of the military operational worlds, you begin to see similar patterns evolve. And in the most highly evolved organizations and top, uh, top performing, higher risk occupations, you see that they formally go about these, things in an academic sense. That was really my entry into this world of human factors and performance under pressure and cognitive psychology.
1: So that's so interesting because there's a couple of things hidden in that structure that you just defined that, that I want to drill into a little bit. So that means that you were a paramedic and seeing patients and working on people and also joined the military and also went through selection and assessment Before you really started thinking about this as its own thing. Am I reading that right?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It really didn't all coalesce in my mind until the rubber really hit the road. And I was operating with some of these other guys who were much more experienced than I was.
1: Like, how did it work going through selection and assessment for you? Because part of that, in my limited understanding, tests for the ability to handle yourself psychologically, not just physically as you're doing this, right? Like, you must have had some innate version of some of these or some nascent version of some of these skills online and operational, even if they weren't bubbling up to consciousness yet.
0: Yeah, so actually that's that's a really, really good point. Although it was when I first became operational, those ideas coalesced. One of the really interesting things was that I had noticed that even especially during the indoctrination course, which is our initial 10-week selection course, which traditionally washes out about 80 to 90% of people, it is rough. I have not found a person yet. By the way, this is this is across the special operations world. Whatever version of assessment and selection indoctrination from buns to my you know my former special forces colleagues to the the pararescue world, everybody has a different version. No one I have ever met was like, "Oh, that was a cakewalk. That was so easy. Like I, <laughs> never, I never had an issue with it." But what I realized retrospectively was that we all started to develop these rudimentary and crude. Ways of doing it, you know. Some people would just they would say just like zone out when you're getting hammered and beat to death, and you're cold and tired. It's two in the morning, and you're still PTing, getting screamed at. Like literally, go to like your happy place and just forget that you're there. Some people would have other strategies. I remember like one night, especially during Hell Week, where uh, we were in the pool in the middle of the night. It was probably one of the closest I've ever come to quitting. That I think that was the closest I ever come to quitting. And I remember doing the, these underwater swims and you know, almost passing out a couple of times. And the instructor still hammering us and saying, go, go, go. And I thought to myself, how can I motivate myself to do this? And it was really hard. And I just remember thinking, you know, what if the people that meant the most to me were on the other end of the pool drowning? What would I do? I wouldn't, I wouldn't sit here and cry and and quit and walk out of the pool. I would ante up and I would go get them. And that's, I I imagine that. There are other like funny, but crude psychological reframing techniques. So I remember one time I, I literally collapsed from exhaustion during this very long ruck run. And uh, the instructors pulled this truck up and they had uh, bags of McDonald's on the back of the bag. And they're like, you can quit now. You just got to get up and walk over the truck and you can get some McDonald's and go home and quit right now. It'll make it easy for you. And I remember thinking to myself, don't get up. It takes a positive expenditure of energy right now to get up and go get the McDonald's just lay here like a possum and get screamed at and take a rest for two minutes and wait till the truck drives away and then get up and join the rest of the team. That's exactly what I did. (laughs) So those are very, uh, like I said, crude techniques, but you can see amongst you and your colleagues given the situation that it's, it's, it's a coping mechanism outside of, you know, the, the understood literature and outside it being trained or developed. It's just sort of what you do to survive. Wow, man.
1: (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) It's amazing that it worked. That's (laughs) cool. (laughs) Yeah, That's stunning. I guess part of the reason I'm asking that is that an open question for me and really for the broader sort of emergency mind project community in general is like, when do you start working on this stuff? Right? Like, when, like, at what point do you really start training? And I look back at my own arc of this, and with what I understand now, it strikes me as like, wow, I waited so long before I started actually thinking actively about the internal mental and uh, psychological skill set that I need to really perform my work. And I wonder what would have happened if I'd been introduced to that earlier. I don't really know what the right answer is. I'm I'm not really sure that I've found anybody that even claims to know what the right answer is, but it's interesting to sort of map that onto the, the process that you're describing about that.
0: Yeah. I think you've hit on probably one of the biggest challenges for us right now is understanding how and when to incorporate this training because it's really hard to know when because it's i think if if you don't understand the challenge and haven't <laughs> felt it and haven't been there it's really hard to understand how fundamentally challenging it can be. And it's really hard to understand individually how you experience that, you know, the the various psychological and perceptual things that will change when you get stressed out. That said, you don't want to wait too long, right? So, if you do it too early, you you know, like with medical students who have no exposure to this environment, they're going to be like, I don't know why you're teaching me this. They're just struggling to learn the very basic fundamentals of understanding anatomy and physiology. And likewise, I wouldn't even say with some of the interns, like our EM interns in the same way. They're just learning like the basics of how to learn our charting system and the basics of, you know, differential diagnosis and doing some of these fundamental skills. But you don't want to wait too long. Like by the time you get to be a second or third year and you're you're seeing very sick patients on a regular basis in our our ED critical care unit, our what we call our uh, emergency department resuscitation unit, it's probably a little late and you could have been practicing it earlier. I hypothesize that at some point you need, I think, two, uh, two things. One, you need the basic skill set, the knowledge base. If you don't have those two things down, I think really beginning to drill into this, some of these things and really being able to train them and develop them is likely not the best expenditure of your time and energy. I think planting the seed is maybe not a bad idea. And understanding and going over some of like actually talking about this stuff, just like listening to this podcast, for example, or talking about some of these things is probably not a bad idea. Because in fact, there's some evidence that just by adjusting people's expectations and letting them know that when this happens to you, it's okay. It's normal, completely something that you can manage for the most part. There are things you can do, interventions you can take to fix it or at least address it. And I think that's important because going into it, you don't feel like a total failure on your first day or second day when you start to see really, really critically ill patients. So I think that's a potential, but I really do believe more and more when it is a highly technical specialty, whether you're jumping out of a plane or whether you're diving or whether you're performing emergency interventions, the fundamental knowledge and procedural skill has to be there because it's very hard to control for some of the psychological elements of these things you're basically what your brain is attending to is so fantastically focused on not screwing up the steps of a key move in whatever resuscitative event that you're doing or key analysis of you know a patient or a blood gas or a whatever and I think that's really hard unless those fundamentals are there unless the foundation is there.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think that's mirrored by what we know from studying how other people and other disciplines learn and study things, right? Like you you take like a jujitsu class or something, right? Like you don't roll the first time with the move in open practice. You break it down, you, t- you train it, you dissect it, you understand the fundamental aspects of it. Then you start applying it gradually under pressure until you get to the point where you can do it. But somewhere along the line, you still also have to work into that pressure training to it so that you don't get completely like crushed the first time you're actually right. you know right, right, rolling right. with something Somebody. So we're trying an experiment this year, which is, this is the first time that our interns sat down with me and we did like day one of orientation. What is the Yerkes-Dodson curve? What does performance yeah. under pressure look like? Like, what do you feel? What is introception What does it feel like when you're overloaded? And let's start building some vocabulary around this. Like, Hey, I'm feeling frazzled. Okay. What are you going to do when you feel like that? And I'm curious to see how that plays out as the year keeps going for them. And especially as that gets into, um, you know, like you're saying, like they're starting to put in you know, towards the middle or end of the year, they're starting to you know be called upon to put in a critical central line or something, or they're starting to get called upon to maybe jump up and do an intubation, uh, even though somebody else is really managing the whole rest of the dynamics of the room in the case. Um, I think you're right. I think that setting the stage and putting a seed in place to give them a framework to use to really understand what they're feeling and describing, that is more advanced than the Neanderthal level techniques that I was doing when I was an intern, <laughs> like like you're describing, like you know, like Dan don't feel good, <laughs> right? Like like that's about the level of sort of like introspection that I was doing when I first started compared to what we're doing now. But I think it's like a good start to get that fire burning. Absolutely. So let's jump ahead in time a little bit. You started talking about how you were just becoming operational and you were realizing, hey, I, I not only do I need to work on this other aspect of my craft, but there's all these people that I'm watching do it. I'm loving learning from them. Maybe I'm starting to put a couple of things in place myself. What did that first bit look like for you? What did it look like when you started to experiment? Would you go and say, okay, Joe over here does XYZ. So tomorrow I'm going to do XYZ. What did that loop look like for you?
0: Uh, I think it took on two flavors initially. And this was when, after I had that initial epiphany before I started researching it and before there was another very critical event that sort of really brought the pieces together. But prior to that, I took on two forms. One was essentially mimicry, right? Like I was like, how do you do that? What works for you? And they're like, oh, well, I visualize this and I visualize that and I visualize the target and this sort of thing. And I started playing around with, okay, like if we get, launched this assault team, something happened to them. One of the Humvees got blown up. You know, what are the injuries that I'm likely to see? What is this thing going to look like when we land? Uh, What's the infield plan going to look like? What's it going to look like when I get there? What are some of the key critical interventions that I may have to do as soon as I get there before I do anything else after that whole area is secured? You know, likely airway and hemorrhage control type stuff. So I, I would walk through some of those skills in my head, just like some of the other people had done, and the other thing was very interesting, which I actually think is very common uh, in our world, which is we call it tactical arts and crafts. It's like, okay, so if I were to, uh, how what's the quickest way? That I could get into this cricket, and we would do things like you're literally using duct tape to create pull tabs on bags and things, because you know that your dexterity under these situations is in these situations is pretty low. So you're literally designing pull tabs. You're setting things up so that you know. I know that the way I had my little kit set up, it was from left to right. It was basically a scalpel, and then a bougie, and then a, then the tube and securing device. And eventually, we actually ended up preloading the bougie as part of these little kits. So you, even for little airway things, you're trying to get faster. You're trying to make it more efficient. You're trying to make it easier and trying to reduce the cognitive load to think about some of these things. Uh, And that took on many different flavors with packs and kits and all sorts of stuff. That was our first sort of inadvertent, I guess you might say, way of manipulating the system that we were using not necessarily using specific behavioral skills or psychological techniques, but developing systems that made things easier and more efficient and reduced the cognitive load. And so those were like the first two things I would say.
1: You're getting at something that's so critical here, which is worth calling out by name, right? Which is that when we think about how we improve performance in emergencies, we think about individual factors. We think about Like what I do on the inside of me, what are the psychological skills that I use? We think about team factors, like what are the things that we work together if you and I are running a case together about how to make that happen? And then we think about structural factors, which are what are the things that we set up around us that whether they're physical things or behavioral economic techniques or nudges or whatever that predispose us to success as opposed to failure. That hierarchy of multiple layers of interventions is sometimes hard to see, but magical when you actually get it going.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's especially when it comes to the environmental factors or the structural features that you were talking about I think sometimes and I think it is pretty common for a lot of people and organizations to do that first and it, it may not necessarily be in the the best hierarchy but I think people choose that one because it's most tangible to them and it's most accessible in terms of manipulating environmental change and seems to be the most natural for the most part like when you go to different organizations they'll have like a difficult airway cart and they'll tweak it and you you know, uh, develop it based upon their experience to make it faster and more efficient or uh, line cart or whatever it is. I think those environmental factors, you can just see them, you can touch them. You can, I think, see quick change. Some of like the psychological skills, for example, are much harder to develop and train, whereas it's much more granular when you make a faster kit. Uh, it's just there in front of you.
1: I wonder if there's also a component of ownership around that, right? Like, in what you're describing, like you own that kit, that's your kit. You set it up the way that you want. And it creates sort of like a dominion of control in your environment. Like you have that within your locus of control is how you set your kit up. I think like some of the places that I've worked, I've often worked there as a guest in some sort, like I'm locum or I'm passing through, or I'm uh, one of multiple equivalent level doctors that work in this space. So we often don't have that ownership over the environment around us. Like it's set up a way that's set up and the person that sets it up, you know, maybe isn't medical at all. Maybe they're the tech, maybe they're the whatever, and they don't really see the same way that we do about it. So there's these different like approaches towards getting at this. But I I don't know, I love this idea that, that sometimes it's more natural to work on the environmental and structural factors before the internal personal factors.
0: Huh. Yeah, I think it's it's, it's simply anecdote um, from my perspective, but it seems to be a common thread. So
1: you mentioned briefly that there was another critical thing that happened that really altered your viewpoint about all this. What was that?
0: Yeah. So I would say the when I first became aware was one moment. But then. Actually, what we do when we were done with a deployment, you would have to uh, cycle back to the US. So I was stationed overseas and deployed overseas, but we would cycle back to the US to various training centers uh, and got phenomenal training at places like the University of Alabama and Birmingham, uh, Shock Trauma in Maryland. Some, I did not go there, but some others went to the uh, University of Cincinnati. And uh, the training that we got was uh, amazing. They gave us probably better than resident access to procedures and a whole bunch of other things. I'm sure that had something to do with the fact that the Air Force was paying them a lot of money. But either way, it was a great experience. And I remember this one night, we were uh, in the trauma resuscitation units. So we're in the true at Shock Trauma. And uh, one of the attendings, is this, uh, we get this call that Trooper 1's one of the helicopters is landing the gentleman who had a gunshot wound to the chest, multiple gunshot wounds to the chest. And then like as they're unloading him and headed toward the elevator on the roof and about to come down to us, dude loses pulses. And, uh, and I remember the, that attending talking to the trauma fellow and you know kind of pimping in, asking him, all right, so he just lost pulses. What do you want to do now? And you could tell the fellow, was a new fellow, this is the false, it was a relatively new fellow. You could tell he was a little uh, discombobulated and and very quickly, because we had like two or three minutes, the attendant just sort of calmly stopped and was like, you know, the thing that you got to think about right now is the critical procedure that's going to save this guy's life is accessing the left hemithorax. So, he, he literally said, at this point, when I hear that, that story, that event, we have two minutes, it just happened. I think about doing a, a clamshell thoracotomy and he told him that in uh, those next two minutes, he tells everybody. Everybody what to do. And then he, as he stand at the foot of the bed, waiting for him to come down the hall, he imagined the whole procedure. And when he said that it was like, ding, this giant light came on. I was like, Holy smokes. Like this guy is a, is a seasoned trauma attending at one of the, the busiest, most amazing trauma centers in the country. He has not read the literature. He does not know. He was not a special forces guy. He was not in the, you know, in the military. And somehow in parallel, these guys developed similar coping mechanisms, similar strategies of strategic adaptation to deal with these very, very time sensitive, very, very critical, very, very busy situations. And I was like, there's got to be something to this. There's got to be something to this. If I see these two people that I look up to who I know objectively are really, really freaking good at what they do in really, really high stress environments, there's got to be something to this. And that's where I actually started to like read and research and find every single book and article I could on, uh, on some of these subjects and really explore the world. World of human factors and cognitive science and performance under pressure.
1: That's such an intense moment. And that realization of like, hey, this person who is so exceptional at their craft continues to work and continues to deploy these skills as part of it is incredible, right? Because I think when you're coming up, it's easy to see these people ahead of you as I don't know. I I remember when I was just starting out, I would always think of my like seniors as like, they looked like aliens. Like they were so calm. I didn't understand like, how could they possibly be human? Like I was right. But you start seeing these people and you're watching them do these techniques and like, you know, that, that jump between, okay, one, I can do that. I can start learning techniques about how to get better under pressure. And two, they still do it. It's not like you arrive at a point and you're totally cooked and everything is done. Mm I don't know. Those two have always been super inspiring for me. And it's, it's so cool to hear you share that story with sort of a similar structure to it.
0: I'll never forget that moment that it all kind of, it all kind of came together and I really got inspired. So
1: so what happened next? So you had this spark and you could see how these techniques would be important and you maybe had some exposure and some thoughts, probably a lot by that point of like changing your own kit and the environment around you. What, what happened next? Where did you go next from there?
0: Well, so from there, it was, you know, my... Career as a paraeskiman continued, but sort of in parallel, I just started pouring over like any book I could get my hand on, reading about all these things. That there were actually, you know, disciplines developed to this, that there was all sorts of information on everything from behaviors to communications to environmental manipulation. And people had been writing about this in the aviation world and the nuclear power world. And- NASA, I mean you name it, there's there was all sort of stuff on it. It was it was basically this overwhelming sense of there's a whole Discipline developed to it. I mean, people spend years studying and you could get a master's or a PhD. There's a whole language to it. There are conferences and everything completely devoted to some of these subject matters. So you can imagine it's like, you know, someone telling you about like rock and roll. You're like, you're like 40 years old and you've never heard of rock and roll before. And like, hey man, there's this thing called rock and roll. You know, they play the Rolling Stones for the first time and you're like, oh my gosh, this is a thing. <laughs> and then you realize it's so huge and so vast and has gone on for so long that devouring it is impossible and it t- takes years and decades and it's an ongoing experience. So,
1: Oh man, so so many questions off that. I, I, guess, I guess I'll start with like, if somebody's listening to this and they're just hitting that stride, they're thinking to themselves, hey, I really want to start digging into this world. What do you recommend? Where do they start?
0: Yeah, so there's actually a book called Performance Under Pressure. I believe uh, Salas, S A L A S, is the is the author, and that was sort of uh, the the first one for me. Like going through that book and like seeing all these different authors and different chapters reference different industries and do all kinds of things was sort of the the beginning, and uh, like anytime you read you know like a paper in emergency medicine, you read through the references uh, that leads to you checking out those references. and from there, it just it goes on in this never ending expanding tree of uh, of reading and exploration. so
1: love it. and what are you studying right now? like we're gonna flash back and forth in time here, but like what rock and roll are you listening to about all this stuff?
0: I think most recently my interest has been on the educational aspect of this, much like yourself, trying to find these overlaps in the literature between medicine, between the world of human factors and the world of education in terms of now that we're taking some of these things, very few people have explored. um, There's been a lot, especially in terms of teaching and training from a procedural standpoint and manipulating the environment and doing some of these things. But in terms of number one, applying those to emergency medicine and critical care and pre-hospital medicine, that's not been explored very much. And then uh, in terms of teaching some of these psychological skills, behavioral skills and communication skills in the setting of resuscitation, there's not much there. So I think I'm actively, and right now is a little bit of a hiatus, starting off critical care fellowship, learning, going back to learning like basic critical care medicine, internal medicine, and, and a lot of these other things is, is devoured essentially all my time. But yeah. uh, otherwise, otherwise, finding like connecting the dots between these things, be like, how do we teach? Answer some of those questions we talked about first, like when should we introduce it? How do we teach it? In what stages? For example, this paradigm of stress inoculation that we've sort of applied in the military in a somewhat academic fashion. And then that we really haven't structured yet in medicine. Right? You know, like the, traditionally we talk about initially introducing people to some of these concepts and explaining things, and then the skills development, and then the inoculation phase, a sort of three-phase approach. which was initially designed, as you know, for people who had been, you know, experienced a psychologically destructive events now, like being raped or being assaulted, terrible, terrible things. Well, how do you apply that to training someone who thank, thank God has hopefully not had something like that happen to them, but to right. proactively do that stuff to get better at resuscitation? We don't really know, but what if, you know, what if we're doing it wrong? What if, mm-hmm. you know, as we had suggested, that maybe you sort of introduced it at first, but really you're developing the individual clinical skills and knowledge first, and then you're going back And like doing the the introduction, teaching people about these techniques in more depth, and then applying the psychological and then doing the inoculation. I don't know. I don't think anybody knows looking at it and thinking about how we can apply it in a logical fashion and, and even doing things like, you know, in, in more depth, like how do you do it when, if you're a special operation in special operations and you're in the training pipeline, a hundred percent of what you do is the training pipeline. That's all you do. Right. How do you do that with residents? Uh, we have like one resident education training thing. Today. We have so much to learn and only so much time. And, and how do you incorporate that? The logistics of how you incorporate, Incorporate that into a larger educational paradigm are, are much more complicated. I would say
1: there's also an identity and cultural component to it. Like, what is emergency medicine? What is it that we're trying to do when we are working emergency care? Right? I think the, the, at least as an outsider to this community, like looking at at some of the um, the soft teams I've interacted with, like. The culture and the identity is so clear. Like, this is what you're doing. This is who you are. For us, it's like a little bit, it's a little bit vaguer. Like, sometimes I'm really pushing the envelope. I am running an elite resuscitation unit that is delivering the best care that humanity has to offer to the sickest people in our shop in LA County. sometimes uh, we're running a quasi dysfunctional healthcare system that has people waiting <laughs> like 19 to 20 hours to get seen for their ankle sprains because they don't have any other options. Those are both sort of somehow in our mission. And, and how do you balance the elite level resuscitation with like the flow and the care and everything else that you have to do for it? I think that it's a, that's a really open question. I think that there's sometimes a lot of resistance to doing this kind of work because it's not necessarily, well, one, because like, I think there's this sense of, well, we've gotten along so far, fine without it. Right. We've we've created emergency medicine as a specialty. We take care of people's heart attacks. We resuscitate them. We do stuff like we've been doing it for a while. Why do we need to like add this level of of uh, introspection and sort of like um, elite performance work to what we do? And also like, does it take away from our ability to move people through an emergency department, which is also part of our goal to preserve mm-hmm. capacity, to take care of a bus crash that's about to happen. So I don't know. I think it matters. I know it matters. I feel it matters. Like um, you know, like in my bones, I know this matters, but it's a challenging sort of like identity crisis almost that we're going through.
0: Fantastic point. I think I, I would add to that a couple of other cultural elements, which is the drive in other environments when the risk to self is so high, is very innate because mm. that sense of self-preservation to be able to perform the mission and not die is, is actually quite profound. Uh, and I would say in most inner city emergency departments, is there, is there a possibility that that might happen? Yes, sadly, as we've seen, unfortunately, there have been acts of violence and, and terrible things that have happened in, uh, in emergency departments as the interface between the general public and the street and the hospital system. However, uh, that same drive is not there. And uh, although I think that we have consistently Pushed for you know, to 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 know things to just to serve our patients as best as possible. I really have not met residents or faculty members. I was like, oh, I think you know, a mediocre emergency physician is what I want to do. Right, a mediocre paramedic is all I got to do. I haven't really met anybody like that. That elite level of performance of taking it to the next level in terms of the specific to the acute resuscitation, I would say, is not always there because you can, especially in certain systems, get by with, I'm going to just put a tube between the trachea, you know, like, you know, or put a tube in the trachea between those vocal cords, like I'll be good. Right. Uh, there's not, we don't necessarily yeah. always hold ourselves to the, to the highest standards. And I think that that's a challenge.
1: Yeah. You have to really choose to want to push yourself to be that elite resuscitation team, right. Mm-hmm. That elite, that, that sort of like cutting edge, space that works on a team that does it, that works in a structure that does it. And that requires a lot of buy-in from a lot of different people beyond just any one individual um, to build that community that sort of strikes that chord for it, which I hope is part of what we're doing here at the Emergency Mind Project is connecting people who are like-minded about that and trying to get that sort of kindling put together to light the fire uh, underneath all of that. I think what you're saying about the difference in catalyst for innovation when somebody is shooting at you versus when you're just trying to make it through a shift is, is well said, right? Like there's different forces at play in, in these different environments. But I do think that there are other spaces that we can look to outside of, I don't know, how did you put it when we were when we were warming up for this, the hallowed halls of medicine or something like that, right? Like outside <laughs> yeah. of the hallowed halls that do give us input into this, right? Like you think about like how NASA mission control and flight control sort of functions, right? Like they're not physically the ones under the pressure, but they're putting themselves in these spaces where they have to innovate. They have to push themselves to be as elite as possible in order to get people home safe from, you know, from space. You mentioned nuclear power and and sort of aviation as other fields in general too. I guess I'm going to I'm going to turn this ramble into a question, which is where else do you look for motivation around this? right? Where else do you look? What other fields do you look at? Who else do you see that's really transforming these ideas in a way that we could do a better job absorbing in our own field?
0: Oh, so I think aside from the whole, not necessarily isolated specifically to the performance under pressure thing, I really turn to people in any field that are pushing the limits and the boundaries of what is expected or pushing the limits and boundaries of what they are physical physically mentally, uh, and spiritually capable of. And whether that's uh, in the performing arts or extreme sports, uh, one of my favorite books recently has been uh, The Rise of Superman which is just uh, an amazing and thought-provoking book for, for people in our circles. If you haven't read it, it is really pretty fantastic. I think the similar characteristics that I notice is, is the, I try and look for these people that have this natural motivation, this intrinsic burn, and this passion to just do better and better and better. And if I can do it in five minutes, I want to be able to do it in four minutes. If I can hit this, then I can hit that. I'm pushing and pushing and pushing to get better and better and better. And people who do it and incorporate it in such a way that it is a pleasure for them. They enjoy it. They engage in sort of this playful intellectual activity. Where, and I've seen it in medicine and I've seen it in you know the performing arts and music and just about everything, especially some of my favorite hobbies like skiing and whatnot, where they go out and not in even less of a structured format, they are going out and innovating in, in very interesting ways that are pleasurable to them. Josh Waitzkin wrote a very amazing yeah. book that I'm sure you've read called the, uh, the art of learning. And it, he refers what to the incredible this, book. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just a, another, it is on that level of the, the rise of Superman in my mind, just really, really fascinating in there. He talks about learning form to break form mm-hmm. and arriving at this level where You know the structure of things, but then you combine that with your innate understanding of the environment around you, your activity you're doing, and you begin to break out of that shell. And when I see people in other arenas doing that, I find that very impressive. And I try to find similar parallels. To how they got there, whether you're climbing El Capitan or whether you're skiing, you know, you're, you're doing the first descent down some ridiculous peak in Nepal, like wh- whatever you're doing, how you approach it and how you think about it. And then specifically how you manage the, the stress and anxiety and all of the performance issues around these things. And that's where really, where I look.
1: So cool, man. Just love this so much. There's so much to dig into on that because it's so fascinating that we all have this like human operating system that obeys some of the same rules, whether we are climbing a mountain or resuscitating somebody or trying to dive, you know, into the depths of the ocean, whatever it is. And that like that studying that thing, that performance under pressure thing as its own skill is the key to unlocking so many of these different arenas like that that just blows my mind. Like every time I think about that, which is again, what brings me back to keep doing this podcast over and over again is getting to talk about that and sort of geek out about that incredible set of ideas.
0: I think until we really begin to view that like other people view it and really, and I think there are some people who do, don't get me wrong, don't get me wrong. I definitely think there are pockets within, and I say this specifically because I haven't gone much outside of these pockets, like the the acute care specialties that we see in the emergency department and the ICU, in my case, or pre-hospitally. I think there are amazing paramedics and EMTs, there are amazing emergency physicians, trauma surgeons, anesthesiologists, I mean, any of the (laughs) acute care specialties, I think if you look across them, intensivists from medicine and nephrology that are that are doing crazy things and, and pushing these limits. But by and large, I think we are hitting somewhat of a, of a performance ceiling in a lot of areas until we really accept it, until we embrace it, until we understand that, you know, our performance is not just a matter of what we can read out of a book or uh, what we can see in, you know, like the AHA videos on, you know, ACLS. It's, it's understanding some of these deeper underpinnings of psychological functioning. And human behavior and communication and and social networks uh, or groups that I think if once we begin to understand those better, we will unlock a whole nother level of
1: performance. All right, so no nobody can see on on audio how big my smile is when I'm thinking about <laughs> this, right? But like like yeah, totally in, right? Like sign me up. I you know I want I want to join this future. I do keep coming back to this. I'm super curious what your take is on this. Like, part of what you're describing when you're painting this picture is internal work, right? It's Dan studying Dan, right? Mm -hmm. Mike studying Mike. Part of it is Dan and Mike studying together about how to perform. And part of it is actually Dan and Mike altering the culture of all the other people who aren't in this conversation, but that also work at the same shop, Mm -hmm. right? So, I would imagine in the ICU that you're about to jump into, You're going to be one of the ICU fellows and attendings who, when you run your team, you're going to run your team with these principles. You're going to apply what you've learned about yourself. You're going to help people learn about each other. You're going to talk about the culture and teamwork and pushing the edge of human performance forward. And then on like, I don't know, a Thursday, you're going to rotate off. And on a Friday, somebody else is going to show up. And what's going to happen to that team? Right, because there's not enough of us out there to fill every shift, and I absolutely don't want to fill every shift, right? Like, yeah, like I no have to be means. human too, right? <laughs> right? So, but so how do we how do we build things that apply some of these principles that outlast our time on the X like that?
0: Yeah, so I think that that may be one of the most challenging pieces of the puzzle. I think there are a couple, right? That developing that intrinsic motivation in someone else—that's really hard, right? Getting someone to be like, oh, you know, I, I've I've got this. I'm comfortable. I'm I'm good, and I'm safe with patients. You know, now I'm I don't need any of this other stuff. You know, I'm going to go work somewhere else where it's going to be super slow, and I'm not going to do this very often. Whatever. I think that the other the other pieces, like you had had just said, is developing, and so it goes on in perpetuity. It gets consistent. And I think that is a function of developing this critical mass of people. and I have no idea what that is or what it looks like and it is in everybody. So it's whether it's the radiology tech or our medical assistants or our paramedics department yeah. or the nurses or the physicians, I think that it is getting, if you get a, that, that critical mass of people on board, um, before you know it, it's the expectation rather than uh, the exception. And I think it, it does carry out. And I think there's, there's interesting social psychology to explain why that happens, right? Like the, the, this idea of social norming, I like feel like you don't know what the code captain is. Why don't you stand over here while we run this thing? You know, like, oh, I, I need to know this. If I don't know this or don't incorporate into the architecture of how this event proceeds I won't be part of it, not to mention the fact that you're just sort of standing out from the crowd as being someone who doesn't do it. Now, where that tipping point is, if you will, I don't really know. But I think it can be developed, and I I think we've all seen it in successful organizations. Whether it's before your medical career or during your medical career, where there is a group and a a group within that grows that develops safety and justice and consistency and excellence as standards, and it begins to carry on in perpetuity. And I think one of the one of the benefits we may actually uh, reap from this unfortunate turnover in staffing and uh, and whatnot is that. Uh, we have opportunities to reinvent different aspects of what we're doing in different organizations. And um, there's, I think there's always opportunity. And even in unfortunate circumstances, that, that may be one of those things.
1: I'm reminded as you're saying this about, about two things. One is a potentially like pretty apocryphal story of Kennedy visiting NASA The story goes that he's walking around the halls and he sees a janitor like pushing something out of the way, and he asks the janitor, "What are you doing?" And the janitor says, "Mr. President, I am putting a man on the moon." And like that sort of vision aligned through all of the components of the organization and that central purpose, whether or not that actually happened, like he gets the point across, right? Like that, like that is like the core thing that you're describing. Like we want to create. An evolving organization that delivers the best of what humanity understands about emergency medicine to that like ever-evolving edge of the of the street, the like people in the hospital, and sometimes we're there and sometimes we're not. I think there's a lot of space for us to improve in that. I, I also think about Atomic Habits by James Clear. Uh yeah, Says something right, right? Yep. like amazing book, and like his his whole thing about like the accumulation of marginal gains and the story of the. I think it's the British cycling team is super motivating, but the thing he keeps coming back to is habits are a vote for who we are, right? Like the small things we do are a vote for who we are as people. And that to me really incorporates a lot of, I think what part of the answer of this question is, right? Is that it's not just, Hey, we're going to have a, you know, five-year plan or whatever, terrible choice of words Sorry. We're going to have a set of plans to do like this kind of thing. Right. But instead uh, we're going to also make sure that the little things that we do line up to the type of people that we want to be. Yeah. And, and that's part of my answer to this. Part of that's demonstrating where I have control, right? Like the other day we, you know, we took part of our time out uh, when there was a lull between patients and got WD-40 and fixed the hinges on some of the doors in the recess bay.
0: <laughs> like, yeah, nice.
1: like, why did we do that? Why did we do that? Because I want to be part of a team that fixes problems whether that problem is the squeaky door in the recess bay, or it's our inability to like deliver high quality respiratory care in a particular environment. Right. And that, that is part of my answer to that question of how do you build that? But, but like, you know, how do you keep that going? How do you, how do you add that up? How do you nudge the whole culture towards change like that? I don't know, man.
0: Neither do I. I think if we did we, uh, <laughs> we may not even be here. We'd be, we'd be on to well, bigger and better things perhaps.
1: Hey let, let's open that up to anybody listening to this. Uh, whether you are in NASA, James Clear, or literally anybody else in the universe like Mike, we want your opinion on this. If you have ideas about how to change culture in and out of emergency departments towards uh, a group that is able to provide the best of what we have to offer under pressure, I want to hear it and I'm gonna rope, I'm gonna rope Mike into. I think Mike wants to hear it also. So oh, absolutely. we, we want to hear this. Yeah, I am
0: open um, to ideas. <laughs> yeah,
1: I love it. Um, well, man, bringing us bringing us uh, sort of home with that, I want to give you a chance. If you have anything you want to challenge listeners to come up with or do differently tomorrow, what do you want them to? What do you want them to change? What do you want them to think about? What do you want them to try as they go into their next shift after listening to this?
0: Yeah, so actually, uh, one of my my most recent challenges to everybody who expresses interest in this in this category is to find a book, whether it's um, whether it's the book I talked about, performance under pressure, or I think that the the other text that I really love is uh, decision making uh, under pressure. Uh, I can probably get that one to you, uh, and and pick it up and start reading. It. And, and really, if you have expressed interest in this really dive into some of the science that's already been done in other areas and find parallels in what you're doing, whether it's on an ambulance, it's in a helicopter, it's in the ED, it's in the ICU, wherever you work, whatever you're doing, um, try to do that. Because I think a lot of the time we ignore a lot of that social science and we ignore a lot of that psychology and we just think about things in the context of medicine. But until we begin to pull in ideas about how we can research it and how we can develop these things and how, you know, what what's? the timeframes look like and what skills do we have to teach and what are best in our, in our world, we're never going to get there. And I think that some very smart people have done some amazing work in a lot of other areas. And that, that is my challenge to people is go out there, pick up one of these books, read through it, find the references and resources and the science and think about how you can apply it.
1: I love it, man. I feel like we just barely scratched the surface of so much stuff today, but, (laughs) but thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Like Mike, truly honored to sit down and talk with you.
0: Oh, it was a pleasure. It was really fun.
1: All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. And you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right. Good luck out there.